Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch. I'm Raphael Baer. And this is a bonus episode. We took a break for the summer. We'll be back with some guests for a new season uh, in the autumn. But meanwhile, because there are people who have been listening, and thank you, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, people might be stuck at home, maybe you're in quarantine. Uh, and because I'm not writing a column this week, I'm supposed to be on holiday. I thought we'd experiment with a new format. Uh, so it's just going to be me uh, on the couch, so to speak. We don't actually have a politics on the couch couch. Maybe if enough people get into this podcast, uh, uh, we will actually splash out and have a special couch designed or something like that. But anyway, uh, the couch is a metaphor. This is a podcast about the way we respond emotionally and psychologically to politics. And maybe because the, the sunny weather has given way to a bit of rain, maybe because we've had the first whiff of autumn. I wanted to just get on tape some thoughts about the, the next political season, the one that's about to come. Now, I haven't exactly got a script. I've made some notes. There aren't going to be any questions from uh, Phil, the producer, to prompt me or steer me back towards uh, sense when I meander off. So I apologise in advance if this lacks any shape or coherence. I will try and limit myself on time. I'm going to set a timer, in fact. Uh, and if I if I bang on for too long, uh, then Phil will hopefully hopefully <clears throat> be ruthless in the editing. Uh, so anyway, autumn. I want to talk about autumn and nostalgia. Uh, these are two things that are, I think, intimately connected. There's always some, there's something melancholy connected to that dying of the summer. I also think there's something very deep in the English psyche. Maybe it traces back to the new term, back to school feeling. Actually, it goes, it's much more profound than that, isn't it? It's about uh, harvest and new seasons and, and the whole sense of the cycle of the seasons. Autumn just smells of nostalgia, doesn't it? You know, burnt leaves, um, bonfires and that sort of thing. Um, anyway, I've already meandered off. Uh, get back on track, Raph. 
the equivalent of that back to school feeling in politics was always traditionally the party conference season. You know, the Westminster version of that uh, shopping trip to WH Smith to get a new protractor or to go to Clark's and get some stiff new school shoes uh, was going to uh, Brighton or Manchester or Birmingham or once upon a time uh, Bournemouth and Blackpool to watch a parade of ministers and shadow ministers announce new policies. There's a whole ritual to it. The leader has the big speech and we, the journalists, all write about how this is the biggest speech of his or her life. The amount of attention that's paid to it and the amount of significance that is projected onto it is out of all proportion to actually how uh, important and influential these events actually are. There are some exceptions to that, actually. Theresa May's first party conference speech in 2016 was pretty important. That was, you might remember, the one where she tried to establish her credentials as a proper Brexiteer and she felt this need to scrub the stain of her Remain vote uh, off her political body. And so she made this speech where she tried to present, well successfully I think, presented Brexit as uh, primarily a, a kind of culture war project and the people who had supported Leave were, were put upon patriots rooted in the soil of the motherland who'd felt terribly left behind uh, by a global-facing metropolitan cosmopolitan elite who she cast as citizens of nowhere. And that was a pretty significant moment in shaping the way the whole Brexit argument was going to evolve. Maybe it was going to evolve that way anyway, but that, I think, was a pretty important party conference. Uh, A lot of doors were slammed shut politically. At that moment. But generally, mostly these conferences are um, Potemkin villages, by which I mean the whole thing is erected for lobbyists and activists and journalists and the MPs and the ministers perform on stage. And you sort of imagine they have to maintain this pretense that the country is all tuning in and hanging on their every word, even though it's only being broadcast live on BBC Parliament at sort of half past 11 in the morning. Uh, maybe if people are locked down, there'll be more people will be watching it. But anyway, it's not happening uh, in, in any meaningful sense in the way that it used to. Uh, there isn't going to be a party conference to the extent that there was ever any reaction. Uh, it's like the, it was like a bit like the crowd noise in COVID era football matches, where there's these sorts of synthetic cheers and roars all piped in for effect. But that element will now be much more profound, and I think. Although no one's going to miss, actually some people will, but I I certainly won't miss the experience of going to a party conference and eating dried out sandwiches in the back of an airless room while some also ran minister tries to filibuster out a question and answer session. The actual absence of, of that sequence, the party conference season, will be felt. It's a punctuation mark. And when you, you drop a punctuation mark from the political sentence, it makes the whole sentence, the whole paragraph, harder to follow. What I'm trying to say is that the seasons matter in politics. The parliamentary year has a timetable. There's a a broader cycle in electoral terms. We talk about the electoral cycle and and there is a a pattern to these things. The winner of an election gets a honeymoon. The loser has to sort of scramble out of irrelevance. There's a sort of a familiar midterm period where the incumbent sort of gets bogged down. The governing party gets jumpy or maybe the opposition party gets impatient why aren't you doing better they say to their leader it's never exactly the same each time but there is a rhythm to these things and again I don't know why football analogies are coming back into my head again but 
it's a bit like a football match where not not all the minutes are felt equally. You know, the last minute of injury time is going to feel a lot longer and a lot more intense than the seventh minute of the first half. But anyway, COVID uh, has completely wrecked that cycle. It's, it's thrown the rhythm off completely. Now, that's obviously far from the worst thing that it has done. But it feels worth reflecting on because it's something I don't think we necessarily notice. But it is quite profound in its own way, profound and invisible. We've had some sense of this already in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, where you had that suspension of partisan hostilities, particularly in that thorough uh, patch of lockdown. There was that period of doorstep applause for the NHS, a kind of blitzed spirit of solidarity. There was also a certain eerie suspension of what felt like normal politics when the Prime Minister... Uh, was in intensive care. Uh, I think there was a, for a lot of people, a feeling that what we used to think of as normal politics was just had to go on hold. That chapter ended abruptly, I think, over the Dominic Cummings, uh, the breach of lockdown rules. Uh, Not when he broke the rules, but when he was exposed as having broken the rules. Uh, The trip to Barnard Castle, the ridicule and the anger that went around that. And you've got this sense of the sort of tribal hostilities Uh, a a sort of a facsimile of normal politics coming back and people sort of retreats, going back from no man's land, back into their trenches and saying, right, we know how this works. Politics is back. And I think actually that phase in itself was highly misleading. It came alongside the practical easing of lockdown, which was driven in large part by the government being desperate to get the economy uh, moving again for perfectly good reasons, although we can argue about whether or not uh, they were premature on that. Uh, But there was a a good incentive to try and get everyone doing something like a semblance of normal economic activity. But anyway, two things happened simultaneously. Uh, Politicians started performing in a more familiar way. There were uh, a load of activities that were more familiar from pre-pandemic era. Came back into views. You could see more friends. Uh, You could have fun outside your own home off zoom however much zoom was fun i never thought it was that much fun you know the football season sort of happened again somehow manchester united managed to finish in the top three Uh, i still don't quite understand why that happened um given their start the point i'm trying to make is that a lot of us uh, especially the politicians but a lot of us took what was familiar uh, as a, a sort of signpost towards what was normal We knew we weren't going to go back to normal, in quotes. Uh, And in fact, Boris Johnson made a speech quite early on in the easing of lockdown process where he said things are going to be a bit different. We mustn't be complacent. Things could always go backwards. He held out the prospect of something like normality. What he said, I think, a significant was the word he used, a resumption of normal by Christmas. And Christmas is important psychologically. It's again, it's these punctuation marks. That's what makes meaning out of the sentences. You can't just have this long rambling set of words, although I am currently engaged in a long rambling set of words without punctuation. But so leaving that aside, you need the punctuation. And for that reason, there are a lot of emotional, psychological incentives uh, for people to, to want it to be true that normal was available and maybe even available by Christmas. And for Boris Johnson and the cabinet, there was the additional motive of needing people to replicate economic normal um, because consumption on the old patterns was what 
keeps a lot of people in work. We have a very services-driven economy and a lot of people have jobs uh, and a lot of wages are dependent on a on a set of behaviours that happen also to be very good for transmitting viruses. Uh, and this is a fundamental tension that we now have. You can see how important it was for the Prime Minister and also the Chancellor to encourage people to behave as if normal, as close to normal as possible, so that somehow habits of normal would not be lost and, and one day in the future we could go back to having the kind of economy we had before. I think Rishi Sunak has been pretty flexible, pretty imaginative in his response, uh, the Treasury response to the economic consequences of the pandemic. But I don't think, I don't have any indication at least, that he has a really clear idea of of what kind of economy we will have if huge amounts of the sort of productive capacity simply can't be retrieved if, for example, the pandemic gets worse. There's a second wave, uh, infections get very bad again. When it's it's simply too cold to eat outside, millions of people have fallen off the end of their furlough uh, and don't have jobs. Uh, and there's a budget deficit of somewhere in the region of £200 billion. That's bigger than the one that George Osborne inherited in 2010 which for the, then the conservatives were saying was was a sort of a threat existential threat to the universe uh, and required massive austerity to deal with again you can have a long argument about uh, the, the wisdom of that but uh, the point is the public now is way less tolerant of of those sorts of measures so the reality is that there, there isn't really a, a prospect of getting to January 2021 and the economic frame being sort of like it was in January 2020. But there is this emotional lure, psychological lure, I think, uh, to think that there is some sort of regression to the mean here, yeah, by which I mean that we sort of, we have stretched the elastic or the elastic of events stretched out into this outer zone of, of weirdness where nothing is familiar, um, but necessarily the elastic pings back and will we get back into a sort of a world that a conservative chancellor recognises and has a toolkit for dealing with. And then on top of that, there is this additional layer of denial about the fact that the Brexit transition ends on the 31st of December. Boris Johnson won the general election last year, predicated on the idea that Brexit was solved. Voting Tory was the efficient way to get Westminster to just shut up about Europe. I think that was as strong an impulse as any particular outcome in the Brexit talks. I think a lot of people really responded to the idea that British politics had been stuck. There had been this Groundhog Day situation uh, and there had been too much venom and poison around about it. And Boris Johnson's unique product that, that he sold very well to the country was vote for me and you literally don't have to think about this stuff anymore or hear about it. And unfortunately, he's going to necessarily renege on that commitment because this autumn there's going to be the crunch talks on on the trade deal. Uh, the structure of that argument is going to feel quite a lot like it was uh, pretty much this time last year in terms of there being a sort of a no deal-ish scenario or a, a no deal scenario involving trading on WTO terms or some kind of deal. And the stubborn habit that the EU has of being Britain's largest trading partner in spite of the sort of Brexit fantasy of a buccaneering future in which our shackles to the continent are severed. All this means that the noise and argument around Europe and Brexit is going to come back, except with the added 
darkness on the horizon or the added fog of anxiety and stress because the bad and out potential outcomes the cost the shock uh, will be landing on a country that is reeling from covid and a pandemic there is a view uh, or there has been expressed a view by some conservatives that the pandemic allows you to blur the edges of Brexit pain, fold it into a bigger pandemic pain, and somehow that gets you off the hook politically. I'm pretty confident that some people would want to try that. I'm less confident that it will work. I think people who want that to be true will continue to say that that is the case. But ultimately, the government doesn't come out well when there's a massive economic mess and how you disaggregate the causes of that mess uh, is probably a second-tier issue. I might be wrong about that. Anyway, I've wandered off again. Sorry. The broader point I want to make is that maybe we have stretched, maybe politics has stretched into this zone, this new strange zone, pandemic zone, beyond that elasticity stage where we just bounce back to something that was normal. Normal will just be a memory that is receding in the rearview mirror behind us and we're driving off into this fog-shrouded horizon. I think the holiday quarantine episode from the summer feels like a bit of a harbinger on that front. By that I mean we all wanted to go on holiday. You know, you got to the end of the spring, the beginning of the summer, and lockdown was being eased and it had been a very intense, a very unusual period. And people and politicians wanted there to be some kind of compensation for the difficulties that people had endured and they wanted us to have a summer and we wanted to have a summer and we wanted the cycle to work as it had done in the old days. The air bridges were laid down and people could go to Spain and France, which was a triumph of the ambition to resume normal over the practicality of things being normal. And the virus hitched a lift on the holiday bus. I now have a picture in my head of, of Cliff Richard on a Routemaster bus singing we're all going on a summer holiday wearing a mask. First of all, that's a weird thing to have in my head. Also, it's a cultural reference point that lots of people won't even understand. So maybe, Phil, you can edit that out if you want. Um, and I really could do without a Cliff Richard song in my head. But the point is, everyone had to get off the bus and they had to, you had to pull the bus into a siding in, uh, and say, everyone get off quickly, but also then go and sit in your homes for a fortnight. You know, holiday cancelled, summer cancelled back to normal was revoked. And my sense is that the autumn will involve a lot of that. This autumn will be a point when the penny drops that normal is revoked. There is a big difference, I think, between knowing that things have to change, saying things will have to change, and actually accepting that after the change, there's no changing back, that this is one of those you know, chemical processes like baking a cake not a very nice tasting cake, it has to be said. There's no way of getting the, the eggs and the flour and the butter back out of the cake once it's been in the oven. Or it's like the difference between, I don't know, knowing that a relationship is over because, say, you've been dumped uh, and accepting that also means you genuinely can't have the relationship anymore. You can't pick up the phone 
to your ex normal and say, hey, can we just like chat a little bit and hang out? And the answer is no, because you've been dumped. And the government uh, has been dumped by pre-coronavirus politics. And they keep sending text messages to sort of say, hey, maybe we could still kind of be friends or maybe I could just, you know, or they go to the pub and get drunk and then they go and ring on the doorbell at at midnight and say, oh, can I come in? I miss the old days. Uh, and pandemic politics is like, no, get over it. Um, go home, find a new normal. And this is getting creepy. I think I've pursued this analogy way beyond the point where it makes sense. But what I'm trying to say, I think, is that the the loss of normal has been declared a lot, but not processed. So this is kind of my forecast for the autumn. I think the the purchase that we have, the grip on the old normal, or the view of it rather, to use my previous metaphor, the view in the rear view mirror will start to get further and further away, more and more remote. And we'll realise it's actually a memory that was behind us, not some kind of objective that's in front of us. Now, what that does specifically in politics, I'm, I'm not going to predict because I we're flying blind uh, or driving blind and I don't have instruments to calibrate exactly what that means i'll make i suppose one educated guess which is that judging by the government's record so far whatever happens boris johnson will look unprepared for it uh, because he will be unprepared for it because he doesn't want to confront what it would mean to get prepared uh, which is would mean recognizing that the world in which he could get by on bluff and bluster and improvisation has has gone that it it has sunk beneath the COVID sea. Uh, and his whole act, which is about making problems go away by simply denying that they exist, uh, doesn't really work anymore. This is the technique that he really perfected how he managed to turn those 2016 to 2019 Brexit wars uh, into a, a very successful general election is this shtick that he has where he invites you into complicity in the fiction that difficulties are confected by cowards, that to point out how hard something is, is makes you a, a gloomster and a doomster, in his words. The solution to a problem is just a simple declaration of belief that the problem is being solved. Uh, and he does that very effectively. Uh, and to the extent that he has charisma that works on people, the charisma draws people into the belief that his enthusiasm and optimism and the idea that these problems are very small and can easily be overcome is sort of, in, uh, I was about to say contagious, that's a, a wrong metaphor to use in the context of a pandemic. In any case, I don't think it works anymore. Uh, and certainly the nature of pandemic politics is you, you simply cannot operate on this assumption that by declaring problems small, they get smaller. And I don't think Boris Johnson has any other problem-solving methods. I had wanted to do this all in one take, but I then had to hit the pause button on the recording for various reasons. It was all getting a bit gloomy. And in previous episodes of Politics on the Couch, we've, we've always tried to find ways to finish on an upbeat, or at least to resist the, the lure of catastrophism. Now, I can't guarantee that uh, I have a tremendously optimistic final analysis here, uh, but I do now have a weapons-grade strong cup of coffee in front of me, and that's going to do something for my mood. And there are just a couple of points I want to make before the closing credits, so to speak, because I'm definitely running over time. The first thing is that I was ruminating 
on the farewell to normality. And it occurs to me that there's an important distinction between things that are socially and culturally familiar and normality in more utilitarian material policy terms, the, the baseline of, of economic expectations. I suppose what I'm saying on one level, there is a cultural adjustment that we have to make, uh, which is the end of hugging, uh, no more crowded dance floors, uh, which has a slow burn impact on the way we relate to each other. But the more pressing policy issue is the jobs that depend on a, a critical mass, the monetization of the bustle, if that's a concept in economics. Well, if it wasn't before, it is now. When I think about the craving for the old modes of, of how we were going about our business and the nostalgia I was talking about, I've been more thinking about the cultural side. The more dramatic shift is, is obviously, maybe not obviously, but is, I think, obviously going to be on the economic side. Now, I wouldn't want to downplay the long-term decline of the high five. That would make a really interesting podcast. But we, we kind of need to keep it in perspective uh, when there's a lot of jobs on the line. I don't want to muddle up a, a social capacity to adapt to new behavioural norms and a political obligation on government using the levers of the state to absorb the shock that's about to be felt. And that's really the second point I wanted to make, which is, and the final point, I hope, uh, you hope, <laughs> that the cultural shock could be positive in a way if it means we start to calibrate expectations away from just some reversion to the pre-pandemic world we orient away from nostalgia which is a trap because you can never adequately realize an idea you had of the world as it used to be for various reasons i think we've sort of established that pretty well in the case of brexit or we certainly will do but i'm not going to get drawn down that path again generally if we are looking wistfully in the rearview mirror and a world that is receding we aren't mapping an alternative route ahead. We're not thinking about the capacity of government or the character of the interventions that are going to be necessary, especially in the labour market. And this whole ambition of getting back to normal, the language of restoring the familiar, I think it contains a reluctance to address some of the structural flaws, the the social disparities that the coronavirus exposed. I'm just thinking of problems in the education system, shortcomings in the in the benefits, safety net, social care, the way as a society we have warehoused the elderly in inadequate private sector provision. None of these things were symptoms of COVID-19, but there were policy failures there that were inflamed by the virus. There is an opportunity here for the opposition. Until now, I think Keir Starmer has been focused mostly on the government's failure to manage the logistics of the crisis, the sort of day-to-day -day mismanagement. That's an entirely sensible and right thing for the leader of the opposition to be holding or trying to hold the prime minister to account for. But I would expect the Labour leadership to want to change gear a bit in the autumn. I don't think he, I don't think Keir Starmer should want to, or so he shouldn't want to play along with this idea that the task in hand is replicating things as they were. And I suspect public tolerance with this government will really start to decay quite quickly 
if it turns out that the Johnson plan or that the, the limit of Boris Johnson's vision is a kind of threadbare reenactment of Britain in 2019, but just with longer queues and a mask, that won't work anyway. When I started talking about half an hour ago, I was talking about the cancelled party conferences and the punctuation mark that that performs, how that signals a new season. And I suppose one of the cliches of that season is commentators broadcasting advice to party leaders that those party leaders don't really want, telling them what they really ought to say in those speeches that no one really watches. I would, of course, never be guilty of such a cliche. But if I were to play that game, I would be encouraging Keir Starmer to steer away from that nostalgia trap. To try to draw his audience's eyes, his hypothetical audience's eyes, to the road ahead and to look like someone who actually has a destination in mind and to give a credible account of the place that Britain could become on the other side of this pandemic and the whole wider cultural economic apparatus and crisis around that. We have this prime minister who comes across very clearly as the kind of person, and and we all know this kind of person, who doesn't like to look at maps or ask for directions and won't admit when he is lost, but just drives around aimlessly pretending to recognise things, pretending to know exactly where he is and promising treats to the passengers for whenever we get there, wherever they're might be. And so there is a vacancy for a real grown-up who gives a plausible impression of actually knowing where we are and knowing where we should be going. Maybe that's not as quite as upbeat as I had hoped, but these aren't tremendously upbeat times and I'm definitely over my allocated, self-allocated slot here, so I'm going to stop talking. If you have listened this far, Thank you. We'll be back in September. Then I will make room on the Politics on the Couch couch for some guests. And if there are any upholsterers listening who want to design us an actual couch, please get in touch. Or any non-upholsterers also who might have questions or thoughts, uh, please do send them. And enjoy the rest of the summer. Phil, I'm going to send this to you now and you can just cut it to ribbons in the edit if you like. Over and out. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.